With your host, Ed Bondarenka. Our goal is to provide a platform for a discussion of pro life, pro Christian, and pro American constitutional principles in the light of current and historical events. America, bless God. Well, good afternoon and welcome to Your American Heritage, where we talk about the two things you're not supposed to religion and politics. My name is Ed Bondarenka and I'm your host. And my pronouns are none of your business. Now, the show is produced by Derek Stone, the hardest working man in radio. He's also the host of Stone Cold Sports, Sundays, noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd, the rock and rev on the intersection at noon, cause it's not your normal fluffy Christian show. So I recommend that you listen to the podcasts of previous shows of Your American Heritage if you did not hear them or you just want to treat yourself because I look back at some of them and, and actually I'm, I'm proud of the work we've done here and the guests we've had to talk about things that matter. Now, I recommend the Pastor Arter interviews and the Bill Federer shows also. It's always good to hear from Bill and um, especially it would be good to hear from Bill today. So uh Go to Spotify or Google Podcasts and search for Your American Heritage Podcast and subscribe. Or go to whamradio.com and click on the podcast tab. It's there. Share them with your friends. So let's open in prayer. Father, this nation founded on principles founded in your word needs your help. We need your help. Would you please help us and deliver us from the evil that seeks to oppress us? Will you please lead us and guide us into righteousness and wisdom? Thank you. It's day 129 of the coup. There is a pretender in the White House. The balance of power in the Senate has been stolen, and there are powers that are using all of this to overthrow the Constitution and implement their dominion over us. The Great Reset is not their goal. That's just part of their plan. Their goal is to enslave you and me and make us like it. Our job is to resist, to support each other, and to push back their agenda, to encourage each other. That's part of what this show is about, is to encourage and strengthen and bring resources and information. Uh, we only get an hour a week to do it, but you know I'm not going to cover a lot of stuff that you get everywhere else, the Blaze, Fox News, Tucker, Tucker Carlson, you know. Uh, I assume most of my listeners are pretty savvy to those uh, sources of in information. And so, um, you know, I've only got an hour. I hope to bring you information that you don't hear other places. Um, our phone number is 734-822-1600. And I was going to say, please refrain from calling until later after we talk to our guest for a while. So uh, I don't feel comfortable wishing you a happy Memorial Day. I wish you a happy day. But uh, I trust you will contemplate the ultimate sacrifice made for us by those who gave that sacrifice to maintain our shared American heritage. We're glad they did it. We're not happy they did it. So 
I wanted to honor those by discussing Memorial Day today with author, historian, television, and radio personality, William J. Federer. We were going to pre-record this show because I thought that uh, I'd give Bill a break on Memorial Day weekend so that uh, we wouldn't have to be live and in the studio together or separately. And uh, so we were going to record it, pre-recorded Thursday night. But then I got held at work until well after 9 p.m. And Bill graciously agreed to appear today on uh, uh, live. And so that would be all well and good if Bill was actually joining us, which he's not. And I have no idea why not. I just uh, uh, contacted him this morning and <laughs> had the impression he'd be here. And uh, so he's not. So that whole thing about please refrain from calling until later after Bill and I have talked a while. Well, that's not. Let's see how it happens. Let's see if Bill uh, is having technical difficulties and he joins us soon. Derek, the hardest working man in radio, is trying to get through to Bill and see if he will indeed join us. So I wanted to talk about Memorial Day and how we got Memorial Day because, uh, you know, it's it's not just the start of summer. It's not a holiday that well, let's say our forefathers or even our midfathers, if you want to talk about, you know, uh, Lincoln or or some of you know Teddy Roosevelt or some of our other great presidents came up with, uh, hey, let's mark off the beginning of summer with a three-day weekend and barbecues. Uh, it actually started out as something called Decoration Day, and like many. Um, Oh, events in history, they get a little bit muddied as to their origins. Now, we do know that uh, in 1868, there was a general, his name was John A. Logan, and he was a leader of an organization called the Northern Civil War Veterans, and he called for a nationwide day of remembrance on the 30th of May, 1868, designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who had died in defense of their country during the Civil War. So, you know, every city, virtually every city and township had, you know, a Civil War cemetery or markers for those bodies that weren't returned. Uh, I find it interesting to go through this uh, old cemetery in Detroit I think it's called Woodside. I can't I know where it is, but I can't remember the name of it. And you can go through there and you can actually see the names and dates of fallen Civil War veterans there. Um, so on the first decoration day, General James Garfield made a speech at Arlington National Cemetery and 5,000 people decorated the graves of the 20,000 Civil War soldiers that were buried there. So, you know, a number of different states had these oh, parades, uh, uh, meetings, graveside uh, decorations to commemorate their fallen war dead, uh, those that did not come home, the ones they sent off with a kiss and a wave and did not receive one in return at the end of the battle. So, As it went on, the southern states 
uh, they had their own way of separate, you know, uh, uh, they didn't want to do it like the Yankees. But then uh, Memorial Day, eventually after World War One, got kind of um, codified, Decoration Day, I should say, got codified into Memorial Day. And uh, eventually it became a federal holiday in 1971. Uh, I believe 71 is the same year they actually threw the president's birthdays into one holiday president day to get another three-day weekend out of it so you know that was a year for making three-day weekends federal holidays um before i continue uh joe from wyandotte has uh, something he wants to say so i'm always uh, happy to uh, accommodate joe in his phone calls joe thank you my brother uh I wanted to expound on what you just only lightly touched on. Uh, it's like 9-11, too. It's not an anniversary. An anniversary is meant for joyous occasions. It's a day of remembrance. I wish you all a somber, thoughtful weekend this Memorial Weekend with family and friends remembering the sacrifice that so many gave so that you may spend this weekend with family and friends. That's not to say you're not to have some fun and can't crack jokes, but uh, remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that you can do that because like Reagan said, this is the last great chance of Earth. Uh, if the United States falls to a socialist belief hole, there's nowhere else to escape to. Is Canada going to be the beacon of freedom to the world? They're further down the road to socialism than, than we are. There's nowhere else to go. So we need to remember those who have given us our freedoms and defending our rights. And we need to do more to fight at home to recover those rights we've given up that they died to let us have. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned Canada. Canada is, I mean, they have, they have a bill of rights also. And it's totally being walked over. Ontario right now in particular is like a police state. Uh, Alberta to some degree is. If you, uh, I was listening to Pastor Arthur yesterday on another podcast, and I hope to have him back soon uh, to describe what he's faced there uh, since his arrest and the way they arrested him. It's like, in his words, Gestapo, total Third yeah. Reich stuff. It's, 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 it's horrible the way he was treated. So that was a different him. one in Calgary, right? Right, exactly. Calgary, Alberta. And he he basically had his church service, and they had secret court orders that weren't even delivered to him, like a, a warrant or a subpoena or anything. And he left church, and he was driving away from the church with his brother and a friend in the car, and the police pulled him over, and they had, I mean, it was like, there was a SWAT team. It was like an anti-terrorist group that pulled him over and for the crime of having church in defiance of state rules. 
That's like and the Gestapo. That's like the Stasi. Gestapo. And people wake the bleep up with this. It can't happen here. It's happening. The confiscation uh, laws. What's the proper term Ed, that I'm looking for here? Uh, you know, uh, that allow them to seize property without due process. They seize money. They seize property. They turn around and sell that. Even if someone is not convicted, it's then gone, and they can't get it back. Uh, it, it, uh, the, the, we almost have the secret police here now. People need to wake up. To what's going on. It is happening here. And people love to say Republicans hate immigrants. Boy, are you wrong. I love immigrants because, you know, the most patriotic Americans I know are immigrants from Hungary, from Russia, from socialist, you know what, uh, that they escaped from behind the Iron Curtain, and they saw it all firsthand, and they see it happening here. So they are the most patriotic. They say it not only can happen here, it is happening here. Take it from someone who knows, who lived under the communist rule. Wake up! Yeah, yeah. You're thinking of civil forfeiture laws, by the way. Thank That's you. Yes, I figured you'd have the term. I was just drawing a mental block. But again, you know, immigrants, I love legal immigrants because they are the most patriotic people. They know they have, uh, you know, they aren't, their judgment isn't clouded by the propaganda of our schools. They've seen it. They see it here. Uh, and they're not afraid to speak out about it where many Americans just want to sit on the couch, have a beer, and enjoy the ball game. All right. Well, love you, brother. Take care. God bless everyone. Uh, I'll chat with you later. Okie doke, if you want to sign off that quick. I thought you were just going to finally take a breath there and let me let me ask you something or talk to you for a minute, but that's okay. You're gone? He's gone. So, yeah, Joe was talking about civil forfeiture laws, which have been with us, uh, oh, for quite a while and quite an abridgment of our freedoms. Uh, on a personal note, that happened to my son. He got pulled over in a traffic stop. He had $1,000 in cash in it because, like many people, he just didn't trust banks. And the police is $1,000. My only criminals carry around that much cash with them, and they confiscated it. And so in order to get and, – and what they pulled him over for, he totally got out of in court, you know, found innocent. But he couldn't get his $1,000 back without getting a lawyer to sue for it. It had nothing to do with whether they pulled him over appropriately or not. And most people, many people don't know that – you know, this is the way it works. This was uh, supposed to be a way of combating uh, drug dealers because uh, then the police could confiscate their ill-gotten gains, their Mercedes, their Corvettes, their their guns or whatever, and then beef up their anti-drug units or whatever, sell the money and put it towards, sell the items for money and put it towards the police department. And so somebody something like that happens. Well, you get, are you going to spend $1,000 on a lawyer to get $1,000 back to prove a point? No, you just kiss it goodbye. It's it's a shame. It it just works that way. There's many things that work in this this uh, uh, society where you want to stand up to it, but the question is, do you have the resources? Now, 
hopefully we're going to have Dave Coleman on next Saturday. And this is something we're going to talk about. We have talked to Dave before about why don't people stand up to the abuses of, you know, Gretchen Whitmer more? Why aren't people, you know, particularly uh, restaurant owners, why weren't they uh, more resistant? Because <laughs> the restaurants were on such an edge financially as it was, they couldn't afford the lawyer to actually go through and and try and make a case. And I asked him about class, class action lawsuits and uh, why it couldn't be a shared cost. He says uh, that the, there are real intricacies involved in that that uh, make it difficult to do a class action lawsuit. I didn't pursue it, but maybe that's something we'll take up again next week. So back to Memorial Day, which, you know, it wasn't wrong for us to leave that. We were talking about the things that oh, men and women have died you know, and, and we talk about men and women making the sacrifice. A lot of them did not sign up to die. They signed up to serve. Uh, there was a guy that I was in a service with, and we were working in Turkey. And the job that we were doing, we were U.S. military, but we were to not be in uniform. And so I got back uh, to the States and he stayed, and then I read about his death in the newspaper, and he was uh, killed by Kurdish militants, uh, communist militants, not, not the good Kurds, the bad Kurds. You know, it's hard to tell the players without a scorecard. And he was gunned down on a street that uh, I had walked down many times. He was out of uniform, but he was gunned down because he was an American uh, military member. And, it, you know, I mean, basically, you're in Turkey. It's it's pretty easy to tell an American there, no matter how much you try and conceal the fact. And so that gentleman died serving his country. He, he was in the service. Uh, he did not die in uniform. He didn't die in combat. Many people find themselves in that position. Uh, my best friend was in the U.S. Marine Corps. And uh, he had a number of friends who were in the barracks in, in um, I think it was Lebanon. And uh, Hezbollah sent a truck bomb in there and killed about 250 Marines in their barracks. They didn't die in combat. They died for this nation. They, were, they had signed up to defend this country and they had died in the process. So not everybody has given their lives, who have given their lives, have done it, as I'm saying, as I'm repeating myself, in combat, but they signed up and they did it anyhow. When you when you sign up for the service, and oh, one thing I want to reiterate, this is not Veterans Day. This is not the day to thank a veteran for serving. That's November 11th. That's Veterans Day. If you feel like doing that, fine. Today is the day, or actually Monday will be, the day to remember those who have paid the ultimate price for having signed up to defend this country. Now we were talking about we were talking about community activity in regards to these service members uh, putting flowers on their graves, memorializing them, speaking at them, visiting visiting their graves. And in today's with today's professional army, since the seventies, the number of 
people who know people who have served in the military has actually shrunk because before, during the time of the draft, World War II, Korea, World War I, Vietnam, people were taken indiscriminately from civilian life to go serve this country. Uh, I dodged the draft myself. I enlisted. I was due to be drafted into the military. And instead of going to the military, I chose to go in the Air Force. Bump, old joke. And as such, um, with fewer and fewer people having a relationship with people who have died, and, and I'm not saying, you know, by all means, it's not a good thing to have a number of people in their family die in service of the country. But it's a fact that fewer and fewer people are going to experience that, unlike during the Civil War, unlike during World War II, World War I, even Vietnam. There's fewer connection to war dead. And so I'm wondering what's going to happen to Memorial Day down the road. And pretty much it'll just be barbecue day. I hope that day never comes. So on Memorial Day, when we honor the dead, uh, typically you'll see a lot of poppies. Uh, they used to be sold at street corners uh, by military veterans to raise raise uh, raise money for the veterans organizations and uh, to memorialize. Uh, a lot of these veterans organizations, they will uh, send volunteers to play taps, to, uh, to uh, give a military salute like they did at my father's funeral. He was a World War II vet, did not die in the service, but he was a vet who died. And so they're, they're service organizations and they sell these, sold and sell these poppies. And that's based on a poem called In Flanders Fields. And it was uh, about um, poppies that were growing over war dead of World War I. And the poem goes, in Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved, and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. So that's where that comes from. Um, we don't want to dishonor the dead by not defending this nation that they died for. And we can defend this nation that they died for through political and cultural efforts because there are people who are trying to kill this nation politically and culturally. So that's what we need to resist. We need to push back on those who would try to enslave us with their critical race theory, with their, uh, you must honor my estimation of myself as somebody other than I was born. Somebody who's trying to make you do what they want you to do instead of what stands to reason and godly principles, you know? So I really wish Bill could have joined us today. He would have spoken of some of these people. If you'll come back after the second half of the show, 
we're going to have a noted radio personality with us, and he's going to discuss some of the efforts of Citizen Shoulders who gave the final sacrifice. And uh, so join us. Derek, cue the music. That's our best hope is that, you know, God will come to America again. Uh, right now, I want to share something with you from the Edwards Notebook. When the first settlers arrived in America, the heavy influence of the Bible on their lives came with them. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, for many, their Christian faith was as much a part of who they were as their brave spirit was, and their faith impacted everything they did. This fact stands out boldly as one sees scripture reflected in the individual colonies' statements of the goal of their governments. The Rhode Island Charter of 1683, for instance, simply states, We submit our person, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and to all those perfect and most absolute laws has given us in his holy word. In fact, from the first colony at Jamestown to the Pennsylvania Charter of Privileges granted to William Penn in 1701, where all persons who's professing to believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, shall be capable to serve this government in any capacity, both legislatively and executively, the Bible was considered the rule of life in the colonies, and I firmly believe that the principles in God's holy word was the foundation of greatness, which propelled the USA to a level of greatness never experienced by mankind before. If America returns to God's foundational greatness, we will prevent the greatest collapse in world history. I'm Ron Edwards. Check out the RonEdwards.com. Yep, that plays right into our theme that we need to prevent the greatest collapse, which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to collapse the United States of America. Just imagine, I mean, I'm reading these books. Uh, a friend of mine, Ken Beebe, gave me called uh, um, oh, People's Republic. They're by Colonel Kurt Schlichter. It's a series, Crisis and Indian Country. I kind of recommend them because they're, they're, <laughs> they're fun to read, but they're very, very, very current and describe what's going on in this country politically right now, morally, culturally. And they speak of the Civil War that, you know, he portrays as having happened after uh, the, the book I just read, Crisis, where the United States breaks into a civil war and actually doesn't actually fight a battle 
but splits into two separate nations on the same landmass, which you know weakens us militarily, economically. There's just there's just no good outcome for the United States in a civil war, unless of course we were just to eliminate the power of those who seek to have dominion over. Some things are forced down your throat. You have to respond accordingly. So as part of this Memorial Day show, I wanted to feature oh, stories of men who had gone off the war and did not come back and who served bravely. And I was talking to Derek about it. And, you know, Derek hosts uh, yeah, Stone Cold Sports on Sundays, as I said earlier, at noon 30. And I won't go through the right after the rock and red, the, you know, the not your fluffy Christian show. I played all that earlier. But, you know, Derek is the hardest working man in radio, and I'm going to put him to work right now. And he's going to tell us about some sports figures who did exactly that. They went off to war. Hi, Derek. Hey, Ed. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to mention a couple of athletes who served bravely for the United States military back during World War II. First off, New York Giants wide receiver Jack Loomis, he only played in 1941. He only caught one pass for five yards in that one season as a professional football player, but he did receive a Medal of Honor citation for his bravery fighting during World War II. And this is, I'm going to read part of his citation. I don't want to spoil all of it. I'm, I'm probably going to read all of it tomorrow on my program from between 1230 and 1. Part of it reads, For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as leader of a rifle platoon attached to the 2nd Battalion, 27th Marines, 5th Marine Division, in action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima and the Volcano Islands, March 8, 1945, resuming his assault tactics with bold decision after fighting without respite for two days and nights, First Lieutenant Loomis slowly advanced his platoon against an enemy deeply entrenched in a network of mutually supporting positions. Suddenly halted by a terrific concentration of hostile fire, he unhesitatingly moved forward of his front lines in an effort to neutralize the Japanese position. So that's the excerpt I read for Jack Loomis, and I will read the rest of it tomorrow on my program. And just one other player I'd like to mention quickly. This man played for the Detroit Lions as a wide receiver back in 1942. His name is Charlie Behan. He caught only four passes for 63 yards in his one season. And he served in, as a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps. And he was killed during World War II on May 18, 1945. And for his bravery, he was awarded the Navy Cross. And I would just like to read an excerpt from his citation. The President of the United States takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross to Charles Edwin Behan, 2nd Lieutenant, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, for extraordinary heroism as a platoon leader attached to Company F, 2nd Battalion, 29th Marines, 6th Marine Division, during action against enemy Japanese forces on May 18, 1945 refusing evacuation after first aid treatment for a shrapnel wound in the mouth while re received while he was moving into position for an assault on Sugarloaf Hill. First Lieutenant Behan remained steadfast with his platoon 
and, despite inability to talk, directed the movements of his platoon by arm and hand signals. So those that's the part of the Navy Cross citation I will read for today, and then I will read the rest of it tomorrow. And thank you very much, Ed, for giving me time on your program to mention these two brave men who lost their lives fighting for the U.S. military during World War II. Fighting for our nation. Thank yep. you. I don't mean to, I'm not trying to correct you, but, yeah. you know, I was thinking of also here while you were speaking was, was his name Pat Tillman? Is there a Pat he, Tillman? Yes, who, yes. Yep. He he was... Do you he, have anything? No, I, I don't have any information right now. I, I'm still working on the rest of my outline, and he was, he's the last player I still have to mention, but yeah, he was killed actually by by one of his own soldiers back in 2004 it was it was accidental but yes the the US was in combat that time in Afghanistan and he unfortunately lost his life it it wasn't even from an enemy fire and if i recall I me mean, once again this wasn't a case of the draft this was a patriotic american who after the towers fell after that dastardly attack on the world trade center by enemies of america this man gave up his pro football career and went off to war to serve america and he did not come back you know um, I, I i granted that i'm struggling to fill airtime here I'm almost loath to take a moment of silence because I'm having a struggle filling the airtime as it is. But folks, honor these people, remember them. And these these are the well-known people. There are so many who went off to just to serve this nation and did not come back that you'll never know the names of. It it can be really interesting. Like I said, I went through the that Senate cemetery in Detroit. And you see all the names of veterans of various wars going back to the Civil War. And even earlier, if I recall, I saw an 1812 war uh, headstone, very, very weathered. But people who had stood up to serve their nation and, and died in combat. So, uh, Also joining us here today is Pastor Richard Clark Dietering, my friend, co-host of Moment of Clarity. And uh, actually, I'm his co-host and he is the host, I should say. And... Uh, Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And uh, thank you, Derek, for those wonderful stories. Um, we forget that those who go in to fight for our nation come from all aspects. Uh, and people give up their domestic lives and their domestic calling, so to speak, uh, to walk in freely to the military or the Air Force and... Uh, volunteer to protect this nation and, and what this nation is supposed to stand for freedoms so one thank of you, the, one of the and folks uh if you if you have any stories feel free to call in 834-734-822-1600 once more it's 834-622 did i no. do it wrong again yeah Seven, let me let me, let me help you out here go right 734 <laughs> If you're calling for a good time, call the number that that uh, Ed gave you. Oh, yeah, yeah. You want to go there, then I'll say, folks, if you want to shut Pastor Rick up, call in. (laughs) So um, whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. So 
Something else I had hoped to talk to Bill today was about the uh, the tune Taps that's played at military funerals. And there's a very interesting story I heard about that. And in researching, I found out that it's probably not true. But uh, that story, apocryphal as it may be, is that uh, there was a Captain Robert Ellicombe, and he first ordered Taps, performed at the funeral of his son, a Confederate soldier, who died during a, the what's called the Peninsula Campaign. And this story claims that Ellicombe found the tune in the pocket of his son's clothing and performed it to honor his memory. But then again, there's no record of any man named Robert Ellicombe holding a commission as captain in the Army of the Potomac during the Peninsula Campaign. So we don't know if that story's true or not, especially since I had heard that story, and you may have heard it too, that the tune and the words were found in his son's pocket. And it was very moving, except that we know that the tune came from another source and we pretty much have uh, an indication that somebody else wrote the words. And uh, I'm trying to remember on. the name of the Colonel who actually wrote the tune to that. He was, he was famous in the civil war uh, for, for his uh, bugle calls and everything else. And yeah. Uh, yeah. General Daniel Butterfield. In fact, it became Butterfield's lullaby because he had, he did a very, I guess there was a song before and he did a variation of it. From what I've read, he did a variation of this song as uh, Reveille. In other words, this was, there's different stories about this, folks, that this was not just used to shut down the camp so that everybody would know at night it's time for lights out in the camp, but it was also supposed to be played. This is a good one. This is why they say it's called taps, because the local bartenders were supposed to know to shut the taps in their tavern so the soldiers and sailors would return back to base or port. Now, there's also taps is because of a drum beat associated with it. I lean towards that, but there's all kinds of stuff lost in the fog of history over taps. Rick, yeah, you were ever, looking like you were going to say something. I, 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 I was. Normally on uh, the weekend, either the before a Memorial Day or the weekend after, uh, I've had my wife to sing the words for taps on, on air. Um, I just love my wife's voice to start with. She's got a beautiful well, voice. Voice, yeah. And, and, uh, and yours. And uh, she, she calls in. And so next week we plan on having her sing, sing taps if, as long as she can stay available. But yeah, the words are beautiful and the music is beautiful. And uh, yes, I originally heard the story that you started with on taps and found to my dismay, it wasn't true, but uh, sounds good, huh? It sounds good. I mean, there's a lot of stories that you can make up about stuff that sound really good and try to make it. But if you think about this, just the origins of it coming from Butterfield. Um, he, he was known for his bugle calls, absolutely known. And if you go back to the starting of Memorial Day, uh, being because of the Civil War, uh, the fact that this was written by uh, a leader of the Union Army, um, of a, a number of troops, that he came up with this for them. It's a beautiful tune. It's played at, I can't think of a military funeral in this country where they don't play that you well, know one of the reasons they play it at you know like i said it wasn't originally for military burials 
And that's why right. it can get confusing because it was supposed to be for, you know, they as, in fact, the words are, and they're appropriate for either, either service for closing the base down at night or for a burial. The words go, day is done, gone the sun, from the lake, from the hills, from the sky. All is well, safely rest, God is nigh. A government document that says God is nigh. Fading light dims the sight, and a star gems the sky, gleaming bright. From afar, drawing nigh, falls the night. Thanks and praise for our days, neath the sun, neath the stars, near the, neath the sky. As we go, this we know, God is nigh. Sun has set, shadows come, time has fled, scouts must go to their beds, always true to the promise that they made. While the light fades from sight and the stars gleaming rays softly send, to thy hands we our souls, Lord, commend. So I'm looking forward to hearing your wife sing that, by the way. Oh, However, so am I. And go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I just I'm looking forward to it too. It's just it's, I generally do it the either the weekend before, the weekend after. And since I had something for our show this afternoon, we're putting it off till next week. Okay. Well, so it turns out that there's a guy named Captain John C. Tidball of West Point, and he had a corporal in his under his command who died in battle, and he wanted to give him a, a you know a military funeral, which required firing uh, three shots, three rifle shots, but he was refused to allow this military honor to happen because of the proximity of Confederate soldiers. And they were afraid that if anybody fired any rifle shots, it would give away positions, start a battle that somebody wasn't prepared for yet, and presumably our side, and send mixed signals. So instead, Tidball came up with the idea. Well, in fact, he says, the thought suggested itself to me to sound taps instead, which I did. The idea was taken up by others until in a short time it was adopted by the entire army and is now looked upon as the most appropriate and touching part of a military funeral. And this is Tidball himself writing, and he says, Battery A has the honor of having introduced this custom into the service, and it is worthy of historical note, okay? And it became a standard component to U.S. military funerals in 1891. So that's how TAPS came about. We have Walter on the phone right now, and let's see what Walter has to say. Hi, Walter. Hello, guys. I try to be brief, but I was just thinking about some things that Ed said earlier. And by the way, uh -huh. let me say this real quick. We need to put some upbeat music to taps. Oh, uh, don't go there. Anyway, <laughs> keep the words, keep the lyrics. We got to revise that music. That music <laughs> will kill a dead man at midnight in the graveyard. Oh, I'm just joking. Well, wait a minute, Walter. Walter, as a, I think you're black. Last I remember, because I don't notice such things. But you know, you being a friend of mine, I don't even notice it. I can tell in your voice. I think you might be black, though. Some of the things you say. Are you offended by the words to taps? Do we need to change no. the words because of critical race theory? Absolutely not. Keep the words. Revise the music. You know, like a lot of music in the church. This is the day, man, that stuff would kill. That music could kill a dead man at midnight in the graveyard. Oh, I'm just kidding around. But anyway, uh, that's a little pet peeve of mine. But I want to say this. this. This Memorial Day and Independence Day especially is a demon's worst nightmare. Who are the demons I'm talking about? Democrats. 
They only pay lip service to our military, and this is the day they pretend to be patriotic. Am I right? Can I get an amen? Pretend amen. To be patriotic amen. And don't mean one thing they say or do. Actions speak louder than words. But growing up, I'll make this real quick. Growing up, these patriotic um, memories of our soldiers and all that was I was tuned out completely in my whole household, my mother and father, to them, Memorial Day and the 4th of July, Independence Day, was none other than getting drunk, smelling like a skunk, and acting like a punk. Oh, I'm sorry. My house, that's right, I said it. And also, it was just eating, drinking, being merry, eat till you, to eat till you drop dead. And, and by the way, I used to eat so much on Memorial Day, and Independence Day that my mother had to rub my belly at the end of the night. I had no idea about what I, why I was eating this food. My parents never passed it on to us. You know why? They were Democrats. Grew up in a household of Democrats. I didn't, this stuff never kicked in until I, be, actually, until I became a Christian. As far as acknowledging and being patriotic toward and loving our country. And even enjoying the simple things of life after my eyes were open spiritually. So there's a lot of people that grew up, that's growing up like me, the way I grew right now. And we know right now uh, with the Democrats and their voters and uh, a lot of younger people that's being in these brainwashed centers, schools, they're not learning this stuff. You know, out of ignorance, they blaspheme our flag and everything else. But until they be enlightened, I think especially spiritually, they'll wake up to the fact that, uh, they live in one of the most blessed countries there is, and thank God that our military prayed to ultimate price next to Jesus Christ, of course, for our salvation and eternity. Well, thanks, but, uh, Walter. I just thought I'd pass it on to you guys. You know, out of ignorance, a lot of people are doing what they're doing, and that's how it was when I grew up, because your parents pass on these things to you. Okay, thanks, Walter. I appreciate that call. Pastor Rick, you, uh, we're looking for my attention. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted, and this kind of adding into what Walter was saying, you were talking about the history of Memorial Day and where it came from and everything else. The start in the South, the start in the Civil War. Uh, the everyone had their own ways of doing their ceremony from state to state, even from city to city. And before before it even became Memorial Day, and just after the Civil War, uh, a lot of people draw back Decoration Day back to the widows of the Confederacy would go out and decorate the graves of their husbands. I'd like to point out while they were out there, they didn't stop with their husbands. They also decorated the graves of those of the Union soldiers that fell. If they fought, they got their grave decorated by the Confederate woman would go out there. And a lot of it was to remember what happened in that war, that brother was fighting brother. In today's world, we have half the nation that wants to eliminate the memory of half of that war. And in so doing, they have to eliminate the memory of the Civil War, tearing down statues and monuments and, and graves, things like that. So I, I think the Civil, the Civil War woman had it right. They knew they had to remember the fallen of all the soldiers that fell in this nation. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate your saying that. Uh, there's a story about the uh, freed slaves doing the same. Uh, folks, find a small town that's having a, a Memorial Day parade and support that. Support that. Be there to encourage others 
uh, to show your patriotism. Um, we're going to close out in roughly 20 seconds, and Derek's going to play a special tune for us. So he's going to put up my put up his hand when it's time for me to shut up. And my clock says in about 15 seconds. So, folks, I appreciate you joining us today. Join us later on Moment of Clarity. Come back next week. We hope to have a better show for you then. United States of America is called a Christian nation. Christian nation. Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith. politics, politics, history, history, and current events. Current events. And now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with a moment on sports, part one. The Detroit Tigers defeated the Cleveland Indians 1-0 this past Wednesday. Tigers left fielder Robbie Grossman drove in Nico Goodrum with a sacrifice fly in the eighth inning after Goodrum doubled and advanced to third base on a sacrifice bunt by Jake Rogers, who tagged out Indians right fielder Josh Naylor at home plate in the second inning after he tried to score on a double to center field by Owen Miller. Detroit starting pitcher Jose Ureña allowed three hits and recorded two strikeouts in five and two-thirds innings of work. Jose Cisnero, Michael Fulmer, and Gregory Soto, who registered his fifth save of the season, combined for five strikeouts in three and a third innings out of the Tigers' bullpen. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. And good afternoon, folks. I learned day to day. Just about the time where I figure out where everything's going and what direction I'm heading, things change. I had a whole show planned today, and uh, then then uh, my co-host went and made it a little bit more interesting by accident. Uh, he had a guest that was going to be on his show earlier, and due to technical reasons, uh, well, we get that guest on today, so um, we'll be talking with... Uh, Ed's guest here in a bit, but first of all, I want to just a shout out or a hello to those who uh, lost members of families in, in, in wars. Uh, this is a day that we, we remember them. This is the weekend we remember them. Uh, and I want you to remember that uh, a lot of these soldiers that went to defend these countries, as Ed so adequately pointed out, went to defend the country. They didn't go there to die for the country. Dying just happened to be part of defending this country. And uh, they fought for us to be able to have freedom of thought, freedom of choice, freedom of religion. And we live in a cult culture today that is very much fighting against 
actually what these soldiers fought for. They're, they're, they're part of what we call the woke culture, the cancel culture. Um, and, and it's spreading. It's spreading like a cancer in this world. For the last few weeks, we had shows um, fighting against anti-Semitism. I guess in this world, it's okay to, it's not okay to hate anybody based on on race or where they're from, but it is okay to hate them if they're from Israel. I would argue hate is wrong regardless of where they're from or the color of their skin and hating them just because they're from Israel is wrong. And as I had my show last weekend, there's a young lady who has listened for quite a few years to Moment of Clarity, and I hope she keeps listening. And not just because she agrees with, not because of what she agrees with me on, but why she disagrees with me. I think the more she is allowing herself to have the conversation, the more she will understand where I am coming from. And maybe she can try to tell me where she's coming from. But she was extremely upset because she had openly admits she is not a big fan of people from Israel. And if I didn't apologize to her for, for uh, how do I put this? She wanted me to retract what I said about replacement theology and retract what I said that uh, about Israel and, and jump on her bandwagon. And if I did not jump on her bandwagon, she had stopped listening and tell her friends to stop listening. That is her free choice. And the people that we remember fought for her freedom to make that choice. But I hope she continues to listen because it, it might actually, I don't want her woke up. I want her to wake up. <laughs> All right. Um, so conversation today was going to be primarily about the woke culture, the cancel culture. And um, and I guess things worked out really well um, that uh, we get, uh, Ed, I'm going to let you introduce the guest. Why didn't you do oh. that? Well, this is my friend, Bill Federer. We're still friends, even though. <laughs> he showed up for Rick's show. Even though he likes me more. I got it. <laughs> you more. And, and uh, Bill is, of course, the author of many books. He has a, a, a website called AmericanMinute.com. Uh, people need to go there and sign up for his daily newsletter where he has interesting stories from history daily. I mean, these are interesting. That guy writes interesting books. And it's not just dead history. It's real history. And he writes how it affects, you know, today and uh, different books that talk about the situation we find in today. One of his most recent books is Socialism. And I had him on my show about this uh, last year, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And uh, yeah, another book he has, um, uh, America Has a King. And he explains why, Bill, what is the name of that book? America, uh, The Kingship, The King of America. What is that book? It, it, it Close. It's Who is the King in America? And there, obviously it's the people. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. So we, the people, are the king and the politicians are our servants. Uh, but that's unique in world history. For most of world history, it's the other way around. Uh, kings have subjects who are subjected to their will and it's basically run by a deep state with a political boss at the top. And whether you call him a, a Pharaoh Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, it's, or a El Presidente, or a Chairman Mao, a Comrade Stalin, the name changes, but its power gravitates into the hands of one person. And they rule through fear. And uh, But America's founders broke away from the King of England and flipped it and made the people the king. And, um, and I go through where those ideas came from. And ultimately, they came from ancient Israel. 
So Israel, well, the first 400 years they came out of Egypt, that was the first instance in recorded history of a nation with millions of people and no king. And it worked because every citizen was taught the law and they were accountable to God to follow the law. But uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, you know, like the title of that book is Who is the King in America? And uh, it's an overview of 6,000 years of world history and why America is unique. It's all yours, Rick. Uh-oh, Rick lost his audio. Okay, nope, nope, nope. I don't care what Ed says. I want you to get ahead of yourself and finish that thought where you're heading because it's wonderful. Right, so um, uh, I had this idea uh, to, to study every single civilization that has ever existed on planet Earth. It took a couple of years and I went back to uh, Sumeria, the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia, and uh, that's where the in invention of writing was. So even Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist in his Cosmos TV series is over in the Middle East and he says, it was here between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers 5,000 years ago that we learned how to write. And then he goes on with the rest of his program. It's like we learned so about 5,000 years ago would be around 3,000 BC. Lo and behold, just about every secular history book acknowledges that writing civilization started around three or 4,000 BC, and we're around 2080. And so all of that together is around five or 6,000 years of records, human beings actually writing down human records. And and um, anyway, so I looked at the, the records and you have, uh, you know, Nimrod Tower of Babel. That's the very first story of, of civilization gathering together and uh, Nimrod ruled through fear. Um, the Jewish commentator Josephus said he Nimrod wanted to build his tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And then Nimrod made everybody in the town bake bricks and bring them or he'd kill them. And so it was defiant against God, oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages, the people scatter. But it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. But each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because there are military advancements where the, uh, the dictator can kill more people. So instead of killing with a rock, like King killed Abel, they're killing with bronze weapons or iron weapons or big long phalanx spears that Alexander the Great had or, or scimitar swords that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same fallen nature of King kill and Abel. It keeps getting bigger until you got you know, the King of Spain had the largest empire, the, you know, France and ultimately the King of England. He was a globalist. The sun never set on the British Empire. He had all of India, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, if um, if he could have, he would have set himself up as a, a one world government dictator. But America's founders broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. It was uh, amazing because of a 3,000 mile ocean, because France, the number two biggest power, got in the war and helped give Britain a run for its money. We had this little window where we became a brand new country. And our founders flipped it and made the people the king. So kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. Republics and democracies have citizens. And the word citizen is co-king, co-ruler. So you're a citizen of America, you're a, a co-ruler of America. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. You're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. It's a real unique bottom-up form of government versus top-down. Unfortunately, after every crisis, people surrender their freedoms and it flips back to a top-down form of government. And uh, it's, it's sort of like wearing a lot of suntan oil and you're trying to float in the pool on top of a beach ball. It's really difficult and it just always wants to flip back. Uh, people ruling themselves is a very, very delicate, tenuous type of thing. And it's real easy 
for a crisis to come along and knee-jerk reaction, people that are surrendering their freedoms as somebody promising to bring safety and order, but in the process, they give up their bottom-up form of government and it reverts back to a top-down dictatorship. What you kind know, of crisis do you have in mind? I'm sorry, Rick, but I didn't ask that question. What kind okay, of crisis? question, but said it, ask it again. What kind of crisis might come up that you're thinking of? Right, well, uh, you know, at the very beginning, the first invention recorded was a plow. Cain was a tiller of the soil. And so, and then people started hitting each other with them and they turned into weapons. And then people gravitated together off the farm to form cities for protection. And when you get people together, someone's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, you be our captain. Sort of like the children of Israel go to Jabeth and say, hey, you be our captain, right? Or Gideon or somebody. And, uh, and then after you win, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, this captain has kids who claim to be a special family. Everybody wants to butter up to them. It turns into a political family, turns into a political machine, turns into a gang, turns into a a, a mob, a, a top-down form of government. And so in their original fear was being attacked. But over the centuries, um, you had philosophers that come along that want to intentionally create crises, to intentionally cause people to give up their freedoms. And uh, a classic is uh, Machiavelli. He lived 500 years ago in Italy. Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena. They always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end, because it'll stop this infighting, that any means necessary to get there is justified. Light, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people in the city would hate him. But if this prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, set things on fire, create panic, the people will cry out for help. The prince will come in and get rid of the very people he bribed to create the crisis. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house, set it on fire. You go around the front of the house, sell a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. You know that quote better as you never want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do those things you couldn't do before, uh, Rahm Emanuel. Or Hillary Clinton said, an old friend of my husband's and mine says, you know, never waste a good crisis. So you and I see a crisis. Our response is how can we help people through it? Ambitious politicians see a crisis. Their response is, how can we usurp powers and rights away from the people so we can push our agenda? And um, anyway, th that was Machiavelli. If you want, I can tell you about Hegel. And he uh, sort of perfected it uh, to what we have today. I would I'd, I'd like to first make a comment, and, and then you can uh, go into Hegel and um, also comment on what I'm about to comment on. <laughs> uh, the Bible, the Bible in in, in the book of Romans. Now, now, Bill, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to go to the Bible every now and then. I hope you don't mind. But the Bible, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the government, or that God gives the government the sword to wield. And we forget something in this nation, that we are the government, that we are the ones that God, get, in this government, we are the ones God gave the sword to wield. And every four years, we vote on who we are going to select to wield that sword for us. But we forget then that it's still our sword to wield. 
And then we sit back and we let whoever we choose to wield that sword for us to do so in ways that we may not agree with. And we lose our voice. We have to remember that if we truly believe, for those of us that are Christian, in the word of God and that God gave the government the sword to wield, that that is us in this country, the people. I just wanted to make that comment based on what you are saying. So... Go yeah, ahead. yeah. Well, that's that's brilliant, and you bring up one of the points I have in my book. Again, the title of the book is "Socialism: The Real History from Plato to the Present." Is people say, "Well, gee, uh, socialism uh, isn't that what the early church had?" And I have to stop them, and I say, "There's a difference between voluntary and involuntary, and church versus government." So the early believers voluntarily sold their land, and they voluntarily laid it at the feet of the apostles for the church to distribute. They were not forced to sell their land and forced to put the money at the feet of Pilate for the Roman government to distribute, right? And so voluntary versus involuntary is a big thing. Uh, May I just, just real quick on that point, just real quick. Yes, it was voluntary and they put it at the feet of the apostles. When a couple actually came and gave them half of what their property, they sold their property for, uh, and they lied and they say they gave it to them all, um, then Peter says, it was up to you if you wanted to give it or not and how much of it you gave. You didn't have to lie about it, right? They didn't force them. There was a total voluntary thing and they didn't even have to give it all. <laughs> right, and there are two commandments that actually affirm that. One is thou shalt not steal and the other is thou shalt not covet. Well, what's stealing? That's taking something that belongs to somebody else, which implies that people got to own things and coveting something that somebody else has. Well, it implies that the other person has something that is theirs. and so. God's into people having private property. When they go into the promised land, they divide it up and give it permanently to the families as each family's private property. If you, if you have private property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. Marx says, communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So, so if people have no private property, how can you be charitable? What are you gonna do, steal from somebody and now you're a thief to, to give it away? Um, no, God gives you private property. You have a free will to voluntarily, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And uh, you know, the sheep and the goats, when Lord did we care for you? And well, you know, when, when, when were you sick and we helped you? And uh, so this idea is God entrusts you with uh, your life and with things and you, can express your love for God by being moved upon in your heart to give away some of it, and that is called charity. But it's all voluntary. And um, and then the other thing I point out in the book is there are clearly God gives commands to five groups. The first are individuals. The second is families. Third is businesses. Uh, fourth is church, and fifth is government. So individuals they are commanded among other things to give to the poor. Uh, the commands to the family are mostly relational. Husbands love your wives, children submit to your parents. There are a few commands of take care of your relative or you're worse than an infidel, you know. Business commands are mostly do an honest day's work, don't hold back wages. There is a command that says leave the gleanings of your field for the poor people to pick through. There are definitely commands for the church to take care of the poor. And historically the church has, they immediately started to feed the orphans and the widows. And then they started medical clinics and hospitals and dug wells and villages and started schools. And virtually all social programs were birthed out of the church. The government, there is no command for the government to take care of the poor. The command to the government is the shortest. 
protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command for the government to be involved in health care, for the government to be involved in education. I love the quote from Calvin Coolidge. He says, uh, just because something needs to be done does not mean it's the government's job to do it. Right. right? And uh, On your point, just, uh, and just to add in to your arsenal of uh, bullets you just fired at socialism, uh, I'm remember, reminded of the account in the Bible where Mary is anointing the feet of Jesus. And one of the apostles comes up and says, we should have sold that and given it to the poor. Jesus' response was, what she's doing is the better choice. And we will always have the poor amongst us. And the one who wanted to sell what was not his to give to the poor was Judas, who was just a few verses later after that story is called a thief. So, <laughs> so Judas could be the first socialist. Yeah, you, you could you could claim Judas is the first socialist. He wanted to take what was not his. He thought it was being used improperly, so he wanted to take something that was not his, sell it, and then provide for the poor. But we know about Judas that he was dipping his hand into that, and like every socialist, once they get everything from everyone, they start dipping their hand into it first before it goes out. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, Judas was the first socialist. You know, that's actually a, a phenomenon. Uh, and the saying is, whoever controls the purse strings has the power. So socialism sounds good on paper, on a chalkboard. Everybody's going to have the same amount of stuff. Question, who decides who lives in the nice house and who lives in the dumpy house? Who is in the government position actually doing the doling out of all this stuff? That person is presented with a temptation. They're going to they, they, the temptation is that they'll funnel more stuff to those that want to support them in their job, want to keep them in office, want to keep them, uh, you know, in, in that position. And the other temptation is to hold off uh, those for the blessings from those that challenge them and right. those that. And so it becomes discretionary. And so anytime you have the government involved in redistributing anything, the people that are doing the redistributing like their jobs and they want to keep their jobs. And they, uh, I mean, imagine if you worked for a company and you hired somebody and he wanted to make the company smaller. Uh, you would be like, hey, let, let's undercut. So that's like, elect. imagine electing a politician who wants to reduce the size of government. Well, if you're getting your job from the government, you're going to not like that person. You're going to want to undercut him and leak stuff on him and so forth. Right. That's called a deep state. Um, that has a question. Hold on, Phil. We can't see you. Raise your hand because your camera is pointed up at your ceiling. And Ed had his hand up, and I just called on Ed. So, yeah, I'll fix your camera. <laughs> I'm reminded of uh, uh, Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. I think that's the way the phrase goes. And the other is if you talk about you know, the size of government decreasing the size of government, you're going to kill all the real estate value in Arlington, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so once you get more people invested in wanting to have a bigger government, uh, they want it to continue to grow and it turns into this snowball. It turns into this amoeba monster that just keeps wanting to grow and gobble up everything. And it's the beginning of the end of self-government. And um, Okay, Phil, Phil, one of my other co-hosts, has a question for you. Um, is it, you mind if I call you Bill? Because you're on William on my screen. Yeah, Bill's but, fine. Uh, yeah. Bill's fine. Okay. Uh, Phil, you have a question for Bill? Yeah. The question is do you believe that uh, we are, we have lost 
our republic. And if we have lost them in the republic, what do you think we are in danger of losing it to? Do you think it's socialism, communism? Or do you think another form of democracy like parliamentarianism? Right. Um, a good question, Phil. Um, the one of my, after studying all the governments in the world, I uh, basically, if you can imagine a spectrum where one side is total government, the other side is no government. Total government power keeps concentrating into a black hole. It's ruled by one guy and his deep state administrators and rules through fear. And so fear is the, the electricity that makes a, a dictatorship work. The other side of the spectrum is no government. And, and there's maximum freedom, but it's anarchy unless each citizen is taught the law. And that's what happened with ancient Israel. They come out of Egypt where for 400 years they were slaves. Uh, they come into, you know, they're at Mount Sinai and they get downloaded the law. And and I was trying to explain, find an analogy. And I thought, imagine if if uh, everybody downloads a behavioral app on their iPhone instead of a hey, GPS app that tells you Bill, how to turn a behavioral app, and that's what the Bill, law is. I got Bill. Uh, I got to ask you: Can you come back after the break? Can you stay on for another segment? Sure, if you'd like. I Okay, because we're coming up to a hard break, and even though you're still talking, they won't hear you out in, in Radio Land during the hard break, but I want to hear your answer, and uh, and I want to talk to you. Absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, how much time do we have, Derek? Oh, I hear music. That means we're at the hard break. Folks, we'll see you at the other side. Pastor Richard Dietering on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but once again, in the meantime, I am Derek Stone with another moment on sports. The Detroit Tigers defeated the New York Yankees 3-2 in 10 innings last night. Tigers third baseman Jamer Candelario plated Robbie Grossman with a single in the bottom of the third inning. Yankees second baseman Ronette Odor tied the game at one after he smashed a solo homer two innings later. Odor's teammate Aaron Judge scored on a pass ball in the top of the 10th inning to give New York a 2-1 lead, while Grossman belted the game-winning two-run four-bagger in the bottom of the 10th inning. Detroit starting pitcher Casey Mize lasted only five innings, but he allowed one run on five hits and recorded seven strikeouts. Five Tigers relievers combined to allow one run on six hits and register five strikeouts. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. You know, listeners, I really wish sometimes that we didn't have commercial breaks so you could hear what we talked about during breaks. But if we didn't have commercials, we would be public radio, and then we wouldn't be having conversations like we're having now. So I guess thank you to our advertisers. And folks, if you want to have your business heard on this radio station, contact WAM Radio at uh, 734-961-1600. Get in touch with the marketing department, and they'll be happy to tell you how you can have your commercial on this radio station and on this show. Uh, one of the things we were talking about was a runoff from 
Uh, I'm sorry, 734-971. Did I say that wrong? 734-971-1600. I probably gave you Ed's cell phone number. Uh, don't don't call that because he has nothing good to sell. I've been to his garage sales. Uh, 734-971-1600. And we would be happy to help you out with that. Uh, we're talking about just a runoff of Phil's question of where are we heading towards a towards a, a parliamentary type government or uh, socialism. And as our guest, Bill Federer, was talking to Phil, it hit, it reminded me, and I'll have him explain about the curves and everything else here in a second. It reminded me back in 1914, uh, the Russians revolted and uh, against the king and they went to a parliamentary type government. That lasted for a very short time. And, and this, this, this line that uh, Mr. Federer will tell us about here in a second, uh, is part of it. it. It just decreased out of control or increased out of control this line and went from a parliamentary into a socialism. And, and we had people like Stalin who, folks, I don't care what you, it may have been a socialist communist go government, but Stalin was a dictator. And uh, so I think, Phil, to answer your question, I see it going towards the socialism. We, we the, the progressive movement is all about socialism. What, what kind of changes they put in the government will be temporary. But in the end, we're going to end up with a, with a Superman in power, so to speak, and he will be a dictator. That's my opinion. Let's get uh, our guest opinion on this. Uh, folks, uh, William Federer. Right. Well, also the French Revolution, right? So they got rid of their King Louis XVI, and they were going to have a republic, and it turns into chaos. They're chopping off 30,000 heads in the streets of Paris. And in the middle of that chaos, you have Napoleon sees his power as a dictator. So uh, so the, the parliamentary power uh, it has, apart from God, there is no uh, reason to uh, resist the power. Uh, when you realize that rights come from a creator and the government's job is to protect each individual's God-given rights, um, then the government is limited. When there is no God, it's just a power grab by the government and those in the government. That's why I talk about in the book Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And can you please tell people where they can get your book? Oh, thanks. AmericanMinute.com. All right. AmericanMinute.com. Go there, folks. Uh, and I can tell you, just talking, the book's going to be fascinating. Matter of fact, I just ordered a copy. Uh, but uh, it, go ahead, Ed. Well, yeah, it is. It's a great book. It's, it's a really good book. Uh, Bill and I discussed it on a show last year. When Bill was talking about the French Revolution and they're trying to form a republic, it occurred to me one of the reasons it went south so bad was because of their philosophical basis. Now, Bill had talked about the the Jews having no king for so long, and that was based on their theological belief, you know, in the law and into God as a lawgiver. But the French didn't have the same religious basis that the American colonists had. Is is no. that one of the reasons for the reason the two different revolutions went in two different directions, Bill? Yeah, it's a great contrast, American Revolution versus French. We had a great, great awakening revival prior to our revolution. And this is this religious revival, people coming to the Lord. Before France's revolution, they had Voltaire and he was mocking God and making fun of Christianity. And, 
And so with the French Revolution, they decided to de-Christianize their country. They did not even want a seven-day week because it went back to the Bible. So they came up with a 10-day week called a decade week. Each day had 10 hours. Each hour had 100 minutes. Each minute had 100 seconds. They said 10 was the number of man because you count with 10 fingers. So they made every measurement in France divisible by 10. They called it the metric system. Maybe that's why I never really liked the metric system. Um, but they, they closed the churches. They turned them into temples of reason. They put a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral, covered her with a sheet, said, this is the goddess of reason, let's worship her. Uh, they you know, chopped off the heads of whole orders of nuns. These nuns had started hospitals and they were trying to make them give up their Christian faith and they were singing their church song and one by one they'd get their head chopped off, one less person singing each time. Uh, and so this was an effort and it turns into chaos. They chopped off, again, 30,000 heads in Paris. They put them on pikes, on sticks, and march them around and have their lewd parties. And then they, there was a rural area called the Vendee, far away from Paris. They thought they were safe, but all of a sudden, uh, the, the federal government army shows up and kills 300,000 men, women, and children in the Vendee, considered the first modern genocide. And it set the stage for every socialist revolution since. It's okay to have a bloody killing off of the old order, so then you can do something new. Liberty, equality, fraternity. Fraternity was their word for socialism. The fraternity, the group, the collective, the mob. And, um, and then equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. In France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff. And if the fraternity, the group, thinks you have too much stuff, it can use the power of the state to take away your stuff, redistribute it, and even kill you, right? And so the French Revolution is the exact opposite of the American Revolution. That's why it quickly got taken over by a dictator, Napoleon. And uh, and then again, that, that became the blueprint for every socialist revolution since. Okay, and Phil, did you, uh, did uh, Bill answer your question, Phil? Oh yeah, and, and 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 the thing is that what do you think uh, now uh, is the progression of this? Do you think we'll be able to return to republicanism, or you know, we've been away from it since Roosevelt really pushed the democracy uh, condition in the country? So now what we have is. Uh, people jumping back, but they very, very seldom refer to this as a republic. And if we don't have a republic, our constitution is almost useless. Yeah, Phil, you're, you're hitting it right on the head. And that's the, you were hanging on by a thread. And the, the question is, who's teaching the children, the next generation? And uh, I was thinking of a computer and how you have a flash drive and you plug in the flash drive and you can download information onto your computer. Um, if we're a spirit, mind, and body, your mind, in a sense, is like a super fancy computer. It's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like the computer case, which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. You know, red computers are better than blue. It doesn't matter what color the case is. What matters is what software is running on the computer. It doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is. It's what thinking is going on in their brain. And the gospel, in a way, is a behavioral software program. I mean, it's like, love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Turn the other cheek. Bless those that curse you, right? But socialism, wokeism, is a software program. It's, it's, a, it's a virus. It's, a, in a sense, a corrupted file. It's malware. And so instead of loving your enemies, you cancel your enemies. 
right? Instead of the uh, in Ezekiel, it says the children do not pay for the sins of the parents. Uh, wokeism says the children must pay for the sins of the parents, right? Um, uh, the Bible has a definition of sin. Uh, Jesus says in the beginning, God made them male and female. Wokeism says you got to Im- not just reject that, you have to embrace every kind of sex. And if you, it's not just embracing, you have to promote it and celebrate it because silence is violence. If you're not actually out there patting them on the back saying, go for it, you've committed a woke sin, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Hey, dude, opposite. cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You married a statue. Way to go. Hey, uh, we got a caller on the phone. We got to take it. It's Memorial Day. Hey, Rick, um, your, your point. Yeah. Memorial Day, I think, is about the nature of war. Uh, you've seen this change with Israel's Iron Dome. If you want to see how the nature of war has changed, you go to Raphael Defense on YouTube, and they can show you what kind of technology they have. It's like a hundred years ago, the technology killed millions of people, and now the technology can keep people from getting killed. I like your response. All right. Thanks a lot for your call, Rick. Uh, I'll give a response first. Do you have any response to that, Bill? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, when you look through history, uh, whoever gets the new military advancement first gets a window of time with which they can conquer. And so uh, you had uh, the bronze weapon. I mentioned the iron weapon. You know, it was Alexander the Great that had these big, long phalanx spears. And with that, within one generation, he conquered all the way to India. Uh, and then you had the... Uh, the uh, the sword, uh, or sorry, the, the composite bow. So it could shoot as far as an English longbow, only it's a third of the size, and you could shoot it on horseback. And the Mongols got that first. And so they would have an army of hundreds of thousands of these Mongols with these composite bows, the recurved bows, um, that could shoot 300 yards. The enemy couldn't even reach them. And so the Mongols hey, conquered from Korea to Hungary. Uh, but then the other countries caught up and and then the Muslims had the scimitar sword on horseback. The big invention then was the stirrup. Uh, Europeans would fight on horses, but uh, they would just sort of balance. But then the stirrup was invented in China, made its way across the Gobi Desert to China Silk Road. And the stirrup allowed you to fight in the saddle with more control. And, and uh, at a full gallop, these Muslims could slice someone in half. And then you have gunpowder invented by the Chinese, but then the Europeans perfected it, uh, made it corned gunpowder instead of mixing it on the battlefield, saltpeter and uh, sulfur and, char- char- you know, the, they would mix it ahead of time and dry it out. And so it was 30% more explosive. So they had to come up with a new science of metallurgy and uh, develop cannons. And um, that, that's why it's always sort of interesting. They always criticize Europeans for uh, you know, conquering America or, you know, Hawaiian islands. It's like they were still back barely out of the Stone Age. I mean, they were some were using bronze weapons. Uh, every European, every Chinese, uh, the Ottoman Empire, they had cannons and guns and swords and everything. So so the Americas were going to be conquered by somebody. Hawaii had Hawaii had canoes. At the same time, you had a Russian Navy, a French Navy, a Spanish Navy, and Ottoman. They were so, um, uh, but they they even um, what a study was done in a book called Guns, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Uh, a author named um, Diamond, uh, but he talked about some islands in the Pacific, and one island got a little military advantage over the other. And what did they do? They uh, the other island uh, got conquered. So it just happens, and um, but the time period 
of advantage is getting shorter and shorter and shorter because the other side can can catch up and it's gone from uh, you know advancements in metal to now it's advancements in technology and these technological advancements are very powerful and they're game changers but the other side can the, the window of time for the other side to catch up it gets shorter and so it's sort of like every day somebody makes a computer virus and then you have to update your antivirus. But the next day somebody makes another virus and you have to update your antivirus. And and this is, Jesus says, the wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And it's right. ultimately going to take a global aspect to it. Um, and, uh, and then I believe the Lord's going to come back. So That's what I believe. Uh, you know, speaking of technology, you look at this. We have guns today, folks, where you have a computer screen instead of a site that the soldier's looking into. And they have what's called smart bullets in it. They don't even have to see the, quote, air quote, bad guy, that they can pick up where that person is on the screen and the bullet will find them. <laughs> smart bullet technology. It's like, think of if the Chinese came out, instead of just a short bow, a bow that would be, be able to locate the target. <laughs> no matter how bad of an aim the one shooting the bow is. I mean, technology is a huge takeoff, and it is going to take things in directions uh, that uh, we can't imagine. And you're right. It's going to get closer and closer playing catch-up, and I think your your computer virus analogy is perfect for that because um, as quickly as we create new technology, the bad guys, again, air quote, they get their new technology, and uh, it, it's like playing leapfrog almost. Um, Walter, you got a, you got a question? And please make it quick, please. Hey, man, I want to say to William, uh, man, I get a chance to talk to a famous person, Mr. William. <laughs> Never seen him in person. I've always heard him on the radio. I've seen him on a, I've seen him on Swaggart and on Jimmy Swaggart's program. I, I'm oh, pretty sure William, you left there speaking in tongues, didn't you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 I saw that. Your point, Walter. That one yeah. Oh. Uh, Ponder on that one, William. But anyway, my question is, okay, you guys talk about the progression of uh, socialism leading to communism, leading to dictatorship, which murders their citizens. Buckle up. Here comes the question, William. And guys, do you think Obamaism and Joe Bidenism, deep down in Biden's heart and Joe and Barack insane Osama Obama, that's right, I said it. Don't take the cotton out your ears. You heard me clear. Uh, do you think they have the same murder in their hearts as those murderous dictators? Oh, boy. Don't shout me down. All right. Hey, we'll let uh, the guest answer. Thanks for calling, uh, uh, Walter. Any comment on that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Bill? Well, you're observing the trend, and the trend is that is concentrating power. Imagine if a toddler has a sharp knife. You will tell that to toddler anything to get them to put the knife down. I'll give you some candy. We'll go to McDonald's. We'll go to the park. Uh, once they put that knife down, all bets are off. You take the knife away and you spank them and you say, don't you ever pick up that? They will tell the American public anything to get us to give up our guns, to give up our freedoms. Once we give them up, forget all their promises. It'll be like China coming into Hong Kong. It'll be like, we're taking away your freedoms. We're tracking you down. You're going to be put into labor camps and disappear. 
Um, yeah, just real quick on that, uh, folks, to, to those that are out there of the woke culture, when our guest said spank your children, that's code word for giving them a timeout. Um, just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. No, spank your kids if they deserve it, folks. They'll be better adults. <laughs> but go ahead. Spank them. I, I, I was, my dad was a captain in the Army, and there were 11 of us kids in our family. And uh, he, he did put the, the fear. My mom used to say, uh, I'm going to tell your dad when he gets home. And uh, we would uh, we'd straighten up pretty quick. But um, anyway. <laughs> Me but, too. But, I came from a big family also. Same thing. But, but it is a trend. Um, that you observe. So people say history repeats itself. Yeah, but each time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with military advancements, the, the government, the dictators uh, can, can control and they want to track people. Here's Augustus Caesar, uh, 25 uh, you know, BC, he comes into power. Uh, and then uh, around four BC, give or take a few years, he decides he wants to have a worldwide tracking system. It's called the census, right? I mean, if he would have had drones and cameras and social credit scores and Google search that he could, he would have done that. But the best they could do back then was a census. He wanted to track everyone. But God had a plan behind the plan because, you know, that's when Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to be counted and that fulfilled the prophecy. I was telling someone, I said, prophecies had to be not clear enough so the devil couldn't figure them out, try to stop them. Uh, but clear enough so when Jesus came, he could walk along the road to Emmaus with his uh, these two gentlemen and and say, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he was able to point out all the prophecies concerning him. Sort of like a cornfield, you see it from one angle, it makes no sense, but you see it from another angle, you see the nice, neat rows. And so you look at when the what three wise men came to Herod and they said, we want to see the king of the Jews. What was Herod's response? Uh, Tell me where this king's going to be born and I'll kill all the babies in that town, right? right? If the devil could have figured out prophecies, he would have tried to stop them. Um, anyway. Great. Yeah. Well, when when Bill was talking about, you know, all the way from rocks and the progression of weapons, I was reminded of a Randy Stonehill song, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And part of the lyric says, yeah, we may dress up in tuxedos, but we function like Germanic tribes. It's the same old sin in a modern day from the club of Cain to the laser ray. Now we can blow everybody away. You know, it's just... I was reminded of that progression. Yeah, I heard someone say, uh, science tells you what you can do. Religion tells you what you should do. Mm. Yep. And uh, just, that, uh, just to run off your story of pointing out that Jesus pointed out all these wonderful prophecies as he walked with two gentlemen from Emmaus, um, I'd like to point out that he did this three days after being crucified, three days after being scourged and beaten and whipped and kicked and then nailed to the cross and a sword put through his side and running that sword or spear, running that spear through his lungs and his heart. Three days later, he takes a seven mile trip, seven mile walk with two men, just to point out the prophecies that he is who he says he is. So just just a little add on to what you were pointing out. Sorry, Bill. I love it. I love it. That's great. <laughs> yeah, hey, it's, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Bill. You're the guest. Well, I, um, uh, but I, I do think that as we I tell people, history is not prophetic, but it is predictive. Past behavior is the best indicator of future performance. And so uh, Winston Churchill once said, the further back you look, the further forward you are likely to see. In other words, you can see the trajectory. 
And I tell people, imagine if I put a dot on a piece of paper and I ask you where the next dot's going to be. Could be anywhere, 360 degrees. But if I could show you all the dots preceding that dot, and then I show ask you where, where the next dot's going to be, you could say, well, let me take a ruler and I can put it up here and I can sort of plot it. And the next dot's going to be up here somewhere. If all you know is the present and I ask you, where do you think see things going? It's like, I don't know, it could go anywhere. But if I can show you how people have acted in the past in certain situations, you can say, you know what? Uh, I can sort of think that people will sort of act that way in the future and it's probably going to go in this direction. And um, Let me tell you why I appreciate this conversation is because history is no longer taught with cause and effect. It's no longer taught that there is cause and effect in history. It's just not part of the school system. And what you're what you're saying is that you can start figuring out cause and effects by looking at history. You can figure out where to put that dot. And, and that is why I am so excited and um, I'm getting more excited to read your book. You, you, you'd be an excellent history teacher, just so you know, uh, because history teachers anymore are boring. Kids go to sleep in history because they're not learning history. They're learning how to memorize things, but they're not learning history. You'd be a fantastic history teacher, just, he is, just saying. He is, but it's self-study. <laughs> Bill once told me, you once told me that a nation without a knowledge of its history is like a man without his memory. And that stuck with me. That basically, if a country doesn't have its history, it's like a man who has Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah. So there's a quote from Arthur Schlesinger Jr., he was a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian on John F. Kennedy's staff. And the quote is, history is to the nation what memory is to the individual. And so the thought is, imagine an individual has lost their memory. They forgot who they are. They forgot who you are. You can take anything away from that person. They're like an Alzheimer patient. It's sad. We sort of have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest country the world has seen. We forgot who we are and how we got here. Hey, thanks a lot. Uh, and... and Bill, I'm going to have you on my show again, if you don't mind. We'll stay in contact. I, I was able to hijack your email address during the show, so <laughs> we'll keep you on. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank you very much. Uh, Ed, thank you for uh, inviting the guest onto your show and having him make it onto mine. And, and Phil, <laughs> Phil, Phil, always nice hearing your input. Derek, we'll see you next week. And everyone else, we'll see you next week on A Moment of Clarity. You've been listening to A Moment of Clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio 